So Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God, who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers, who went down into Egypt, were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then we're going to read from chapter 11, verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebel the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan, west of the road towards the setting sun, near the great trees of Morah, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah, in the vicinity of Gilgal. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you have taken it over and are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I am setting before you today. Thank you, Sean. Good morning, everybody. And uh, would you keep that Bible passage open? And there's a, an outline on the inside of your notice sheet if you'd like to follow along. Um, I want you to imagine yourself, if you would, at a party. Now, I'm sorry, kids. This is not a fun party with balloons and bouncy castles and pasta parcel. This is a grown-ups party, which means it's full of boring people standing around talking. Why do we do it? Let's just get bouncy castles. Um, imagine at this party, boring party, glass of wine, someone asks you, tell me about yourself. I wonder how you'd respond to that question. Tell me about yourself. They're asking you, aren't they, to tell, you, tell them your story to tell them a little bit of the story of your life. So how would you respond? What is your story? 
What would you include? Your upbringing, your achievements, your relationships, your hobbies, your pets, your interests? What would you leave out? Would you leave out your failures, your disappointments? Or perhaps you'd leave those in. You see, the story we tell about ourselves is our identity, isn't it? It's who we think we are. But I want to suggest that we are not very good at telling our own story. You could try it over coffee, you know. Ask them, what's your story? And say, no, it isn't. Come on, tell the truth. Uh, We're not very good at knowing who we are, are we? We're very biased storytellers when it comes to our own lives, our own stories. We'll tend to skew things one way or another. We might overplay our own achievements and quietly drop our failures. We might go the other way around. We might focus on what an awful life we've had or what awful people we are. We're not even very good at knowing what the significant events in our own history are. We don't have the perspective to be able to say, yes, that, that moment there, that was the real turning point of my life. I might point to my my wedding or the birth of my first child, but maybe it was the day I, I crossed the road and I didn't get hit by a car. Do you know what I mean? That We just don't know. We don't know what the significant turning points of our life are because we don't have the perspective. It might be some other decision, some other missed opportunity that we don't even realize would have changed our lives forever. We're not very good at knowing or telling our own story. And therefore, we're not very good at knowing how to live our lives. Because the stories we tell about ourselves, they shape the way we live, don't they? It affects the way we look at new challenges. It changes the decisions we make. To take a really simplistic example, if I think of myself as something of a success in life, if, I, if the story I tell about myself is that I've worked hard and I've made something of my life and I've achieved something, that if I'm telling that story to myself, that I'm going to look at new situations with confidence and with the expectation of success. But if I tell a story to myself which is about a, a failure, who's messed up their life, who's got everything wrong, who's made the wrong decisions, then new situations are going to cause me to think very differently indeed. And so... We need to know what our story really is. We need to know who we are in order to live rightly and well. But we're just not very good at it. We're not very good at knowing what it is. So today we're going to do something different. Today we're going to let God tell us our story. As we come to the end of this half of our series, as we leave Deuteronomy behind and look forward to Isaiah, we're going to hear God's perspective on our life. We're going to hear him tell us who we are. And I'm going to challenge you and encourage you to let that story shape how you are to live. We're going to look at this story, we're going to look at our lives through two lenses. Firstly, through the story of Israel, and then through the story of Jesus. So let's begin with Israel's story. Because uh, this first section of Deuteronomy, chapters 1 to 11, has been a retelling, hasn't it, of Israel's story so far. Moses has been summarizing the history of Israel ever since they gathered around Mount Horeb, and it has been a horrible history. Yes, I'm as amazed as you are that it took me six whole weeks to think of that joke, but here we are. We got there in the end. It's been a horrible history. Uh, In between chapter 9 and 10, Moses reminded them of the the golden calf, as Alex mentioned earlier, that at at Mount Horeb, when God was giving them the Ten Commandments, they were already idolatrous. They were already rebellious. And here in Deuteronomy 10 and 11, Moses takes that story, he recounts it once again, and he calls them to live in light of it. And as we heard this passage read, you might have had the distinct sense, if you've you've been with us at all throughout the rest of this series, you might have had the distinct sense that Moses is repeating himself. 
We've heard, we're seeing the same commands and the same themes run through this chapter that we have since the very beginning of the book. And that really should be no surprise. Moses needs to repeat himself. He needs to say the same things over and over again because he's speaking to a forgetful people. And if they are to know their own story, they need to hear again and again about their gods. If they get who God is right, they will understand their story. So let's look together at Israel's God. Start at 10 verse 12, which is the headline for this whole section. Verse 12, chapter 10. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. So as has been the case in this whole book, Moses calls the people to total allegiance to Yahweh their God. Look at the verbs he uses. Fear the Lord, walk in his ways, love him, serve him with everything, observe the commands. Every part of the human person is to be involved in total devotion and commitment and loyalty to God. And as Moses says, look, this is for your own good. It would be good for you to live this way. It is a good and blessed life to live like this. We've seen that throughout, haven't we? That idolatry is so bad for us and obedience to the Lord's commands is so good for us because it is the path of wisdom. But we might still be asking, part of us might still be asking, yeah, but, yeah, but why? <laughs> why does it have to be like this? Why does Moses call for total allegiance and total devotion to God? Well, it's because of who God is. And that's the thing that Moses is going to stress all the way through these two chapters, who God is. We see some amazing descriptions of God throughout this chapter. So look with me at verse 14. See what he says about God. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. What do we learn about Israel's God? The first thing we learn is that he's the God of all creation who set his electing love on Israel. He's the God of all creation who set his electing love on Israel. Everything in heaven and earth belongs to him, Moses says. Because he's the creator of all, he's the owner of all. If you make something, it's yours. So just imagine that for a moment. Think of anything, in the, anything at all. Every star and planet and cloud, every mountain and valley and blade of grass, every man and woman and child, from the mightiest nation to the tiniest insect, every single thing is created for and cared for by God, and it all belongs to him. And yet at this point, he has chosen one small nation from all the sinful and idolatrous nations of the earth to bear his name to bless them, to save them, and through them to bring his salvation and his blessing to all other nations. The mighty, transcendent God of the universe who dwells in inapproachable light is yet so involved in the lives of ordinary men and women. He is totally in control over the rise and fallen nations. And his great concern is to see people loved and saved and blessed. What else do we learn about Israel's God? We'll look at verse 17 to 18. 
where Moses says, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. What do we see here? We see that Israel's God is a God of perfect justice who has compassion on those who've been mistreated. He is a God of perfect justice who has compassion on those who've been mistreated. Verse 17, he shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. We've heard a lot in recent weeks, haven't we, on the news about there being one rule for them and one rule for us. We've heard about justice being denied to people because of their status or because of the color of their skin. We've heard about rich and influential people getting away with crimes that others would be thrown in jail for. Well, that is not how God operates. He can't be bribed. Think about that for a moment. How can you bribe the God who owns everything? I'll give you some gold. That's my gold. Do you know what I mean? It just wouldn't work, would it? Because he is the God of perfect justice, and he has compassion on those who've been mistreated. Verse 18, he loves the orphan, the fatherless, and the widow those who've lost their means of support and protection, those whose society might start to forget, are not forgotten by the Lord. And he also loves the alien. If anyone's confused about that, children are confused about that, it's not this kind of alien. It just means a foreigner, someone from a different country, someone outside of Israel. The foreigner, the outsider, the one who might be the target of suspicion or mistreatment or racism, well, that person is cared for and fed and clothed by God himself. You see, even as God sends his people into the land of Canaan to destroy those idolatrous peoples as part of his judgment, as part of his perfect justice, yet he makes clear before they go in that foreigners who renounce their idolatry and join the people of Israel are very, very welcome. In fact, fast-forwarding in the story, the very first person they meet in Canaan, a prostitute called Rahab, a woman right on the margins of society, a sinner and an idolater, becomes a member of Israel so honored that she is even included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. There is no narrowness to, the choice, to God's choice of Israel. There is a broadness in his mercy. And while there is perfection in his justice, there is abundance in his grace. What else do we learn about God? One more thing for today. We could Say lots more. This is enough for now. He is a God of mighty judgment who's giving his people what they don't deserve. He's a God of mighty judgment who's giving his people what they don't deserve. Look over with me at chapter 11, verse 2. 11, verse 2. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country. What he did to the Egyptian army, to, his, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you, and how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It wasn't your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab the Reubenites, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all Israel and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. Now notice that there we see, we we just read, God is not impartial. He shows no favoritism. And here we see the proof. God brought mighty judgment on Pharaoh and his whole country 
but he also brought mighty judgment on the Israelites within the camp who grumbled against Moses and rebelled against God and asked to go back to Egypt. If you want to read this story about Dathan and Abiram, you can go back to Numbers chapter 16. One of the very uh, interesting details of that is that in that chapter, Dathan and Abiram say to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt, the land flowing with milk and honey? That's interesting, isn't it? They've completely forgotten their God. They've completely forgotten that they used to be slaves in Egypt, and it was an awful time. They go, oh, it's great, milk and honey everywhere, wasn't there? Yeah, sure, let's go back. They forget their gods. They think that he hates them. They reject him and prefer the gods of Egypt. And Israelites or no Israelites, God's judgment is the same. God is a God of mighty judgment, and yet this God of mighty judgment is giving the Israelites what they don't deserve. Look at chapter 11, verses 10 to 12. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you've come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. You see, Dathan and Abiram were wrong. Egypt was actually a hard land, a dry land, an arid land, a land where the people had to toil to get enough water up from the Nile River for the crops to grow. Not so the land of Canaan. God himself will irrigate it. It's under his control and blessing. And this is the land that he is giving them. Again, we've seen it so many times, not because they are lovable, not because they deserve it, not because they're better or stronger or more mighty or more righteous than anybody else, but because God is loving and he loves to graciously give people what they don't deserve. So here is the picture of God that just before they go into the land, Moses sets before the people of Israel. The God of all creation who set his special electing love on them. The God of perfect justice, who has set his compassion on those who are mistreated. The God of mighty judgment, who graciously gives his people what they don't deserve. A God who combines perfect justice and abundant grace in his very being. So when confronted with this God, how ought the Israelites to treat him? Well, let's go back to chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, and see it makes total sense. The only thing to do, the only right way to respond to this God is to respond with gratitude, to imitate his holy and compassionate character, to to flee from his righteous judgment, to flee from idolatry. Idols are just created things that they belong to God, don't they? They cannot offer what God alone can offer. So in response to God, what must they do? Fear him, walk in his ways, love him, serve the Lord, observe the Lord's commands. Of course, of course that's what they should do because of who God is. In response to God, they must turn their hearts away from idols and love the Lord their God with all their hearts. But that raises the question, what is going on in Israel's hearts? Let's look at that next. What about Israel's heart? Well, the key verse in this whole passage is 10 verse 16. Uh, Kids, if you've got a sheet that has a, 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 something to fill in, this is the one you listen to, okay? Verse 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Circumcision was given to the, uh, as a sign to the people of Israel to mark them out as God's chosen covenant people. It was a physical outward mark, the cutting off of the foreskin of the young boys, newborn boys. 
It was a sign of being a descendant of Abraham. It told you that you belonged to God, that you were dedicated to him, and you were set apart for him. It told all those in that community, the community of circumcision, that they were part of the Lord's special possession, and, and it had done that since the days of Abraham. And yet here, Moses says something frankly very strange and odd and extraordinary. He tells the people to circumcise their heart. What does he mean by that? He is not talking about a physical operation. There is no keyhole surgery that is in mind here. This is not an outward, external thing at all. And that's the whole point. You see, circumcision was an external, outward symbol of being dedicated to God. But God is not ultimately looking for outward conformity marked with an outward symbol. He is looking for what the symbol symbolizes. He is looking for a people who are dedicated to God, committed to him in their very hearts, in their inward beings, with their mind and will and affection and desires. That's what he created mankind to be. That's what he's been looking for ever since Adam and Eve left the garden. People who are in his image, who care like he cares, who love like he loves, who are passionate about both justice and compassion like he is, uh, who are passionate about righteousness and mercy like he he is. He's looking for people who are committed to him in their very being, who are like him. And that really is what this whole law is all about. I don't know if it's occurred to you while we've been reading the book of Deuteronomy, but have you noticed the times when the law has specifically commanded people's inward heart motivations and attitudes? The 10th commandment, do not covet. A law which doesn't just cover the behavior which would flow from covetousness, stealing, murder, committing adultery, those things are banned as well, but it actually banned covetousness. God's law makes envy illegal. And it commands love, love for God. And here in chapter 10, verse 19, you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Again, not the beef beef aliens, foreign people. They've got to love the alien and the foreigner. These are commands that cannot possibly obeyed by simply being sort of respectable and keeping your nose clean and not doing anything too wicked. You can't obey these commands by doing that if that's your attitude. If your attitude is, well, I'll just do the minimum not to get in trouble, you're breaking the law because envy is illegal and not loving people is illegal. These are commands that that search right down to the heart to people's motivations and attitudes and desires. And that's why Moses repeats the command in chapter 11 um, that he gave in chapter 6, that they must talk about these laws with their children and write them on the doorposts and graffiti them all over their house and the rest of it because these laws need to go deep down into their hearts because that's where obedience must come from. And so obedience to this law is not something that can be faked or put on. It must, if it is true obedience, come from a heart which is completely devoted to God, which is circumcised. And again, that's because of who God is. We've already seen it in chapter 10, verse 17. It says that God does not take a bribe. It's interesting that in verse 16 it says, circumcise your hearts. Why, verse 17? Because God doesn't take bribes. What's the link there? Well, what would you call someone who doesn't really love God particularly, He's got real no interest in him, but obeyed some of his commands in the hope of winning his favor. I would call that a bribe. 
A person who does not love him cannot simply slip God some good works over the table in a brown paper bag and hope he'll turn a blind eye to the hatred that is in his heart. That will not work with God. It will not wash. God will not overlook or condone an idolatrous heart simply because it belongs to an Israelite or simply because it comes, it become, it comes clothed in the sort of bribery of an outwardly respectable life. And we see it in the New Testament too. What did Jesus call the Pharisees, that upstanding, law-abiding group of respectable Israelites? Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. What did Stephen call the high priest of Jerusalem and the temple authorities? Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And a stiff-necked, stubborn, idolatrous heart will eventually erupt in rebellion against God, as it did with the Pharisees when they plotted to kill Jesus, as it did with the temple authorities as they martyred Stephen as it did with the Israelites from the very beginning. God is looking for a circumcised heart, a heart no longer stubborn and rebellious and idolatrous, but a heart soft and warm, loving towards him, fully devoted to him with all of our beings. And so as we reach the end of chapter 11, and our brief dip of the toe into Deuteronomy, which is all we've really done, we're left with Israel's decision. Everything in these early chapters has been urging this generation to decide for the Lord. All the rehearsal of that horrible history, all the recounting of the failures of the previous generation and the reminders of God's glory and the reminders of the wisdom and the goodness of the law and all the travels through Edom and Arab, Arab, Moab and Ammon. Three, had to say that. Yeah. It's all been pushing them to commit fully and wholeheartedly and circumcised heartedly to their gods. Well, this passage does the same. In chapter 5, Moses said to this generation that it wasn't with their fathers that God made the covenant, but with them, with you guys, everyone alive here today. This passage makes the point in 11 verse 2 that God's word has not yet been spoken to their children. They themselves have seen the discipline of the Lord. This generation have seen it, either literally with their eyes or literally through the word of God as the word of God has put the the discipline of the Lord before their eyes. In other words, Moses is saying, guys and girls, it is down to you. You can't blame this on your parents. You can't leave this to your kids. You are the generation that's got to decide to listen to God and to obey him and to go in and take possession of the land. And this is the generation that must keep on making that decision to be devoted to God in their hearts. That's the point of the final few verses. Chapter 11, verse 26 to 32. Let's look at those again. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God. And turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you're entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan, west of the road, towards the setting sun, near the great trees of Morah, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah in the vicinity of Gilgal. 
You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you've taken it over and are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I'm setting before you today. Do you see, the decision point for this generation is right now. Are they going to go up to the land and choose blessing? Or are they going to walk away like their fathers did and choose the curse? But you notice what Moses says. He says, even if you go into the, even once you've gone into the land, that same choice remains before you. They're told to enact this ceremony, to stand on these two mountains either side of the valley of Shechem, and to call out the blessings from one side and to call out the curses from the other. There couldn't be a clearer visual, could there? Uh, There are two options, two ways to live, two mountains, the way of blessing and the way of curse. Choose. Moses reminds them that that this place where they're going to do that is right in the heart of the land, near, verse 30, the great trees of Morah. Now that's where Abraham first heard the voice of God in this land in Genesis 12, verse 6. It was at that place that Abraham was told his descendants would possess the land. And it's there that the people are going to be called to a decision. Are they going to be the ones that will possess and keep hold of this blessed land through their trust and obedience to God? Or are they going to forfeit the land and leave the land and incur the curse through idolatry? This decision continues to be faced and it's going to be faced by every subsequent generation. Will they choose the gracious blessing of God? Or will they choose to be treated as their sins deserve and face his curse? Now, I was going to say, it's a tension, isn't it? We don't know what's going to happen. We're on tenterhooks, but we, we're not at all. We know what's going to happen. We, we know what's going to happen next. We know what decision they'll make. We know it because we sort of cheated and read Deuteronomy 32 at the beginning of the, the series, where Moses prophesied that they will definitely, definitely choose the curse. They're going to rebel against God. We know it from the decisions their parents made, from their horrible history, the golden calf, the rebellion of Dathan and Abraham, the refusal to enter at Kadesh Barnea. And we know it because we all know that we would make exactly the same decision. Because Israel's story is our story too. You see, it's thing about our story. You see, Israel is in one sense completely unique. They alone were rescued from Egypt. They were God's chosen people, his special possession. They were chosen out of the nations to be something different, to have God's covenant, to enjoy the privileges of being his holy nation. But Israel's story is just, in microcosm, in in, in miniature, humanity's story. It was Adam and Eve's story, wasn't it? They too were created by a powerful God, given gracious and abundant provision in the Garden of Eden and called to trust and obey and walk in God's ways. And yet in their hearts, they turned from him to listen to lies. They abandoned his blessing. They chose his curse. This is humanity's story replayed in miniature in the history of Israel. And this is our story too. We may not have had God's law proclaimed to us in quite the same way. This is not our covenant. Most of us, I guess, are here are not Jewish. Most of us are probably Gentiles. And yet, even if we do not have God's law, that doesn't mean that we are guiltless. Because our hearts are just as sinful and rebellious as everyone else's. And remember, God shows no favoritism. He shows no partiality. That's the point Paul makes in Romans 2 on the screen. God will give to each person according to what he has done. 
To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. You see, Paul has already explained in Romans that the very creation tells us that there is the eternal and powerful God that we ought to worship. And later in this same chapter, Paul will explain that even if we don't have the law, everyone has their conscience. God has given us all an inbuilt radar for knowing right from wrong and good from evil. And his point in Romans 2 is not that our consciences are always right. In a fallen world, even our consciences can be faulty. His point is that we even disobey our conscience. We don't do the things that we feel like we should do. And we do things that we feel we shouldn't do. Even the watered-down, wonky, broken version of God's requirements, that sense of right and wrong that meekly peeps up from time to time and tells us, listen, you know, are you sure you should be doing that? We don't even obey that, let alone the perfect righteousness of God's law. Humanity's story, Israel's story is humanity's story. It is our story. A story of rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked hearts refusing the blessing of the good God because we will not submit to his rule. The God who made us and who made this world is good and kind, compassionate and gracious and powerful and just, and yet in our hearts we, make, we have made and we continue to make the same decision as the Israelites, and so we are liable to the same judgment, the same curse as them. This is the story of every person who's ever lived. So let's go back to our party. Nibbles. Someone says, tell me about yourself. Here's what I could say. Well, my name's Nathan. I've been given everything I could ever need by a gracious and compassionate God, and I have rejected him. My heart is stubborn and rebellious and idolatrous. I'm a miserable, wretched, wicked, deliberate sinner. I can look forward only to God's curse. However, there is still a lot of the Bible to go, and we haven't reached the end of the sermon just yet. Because I wasn't quite telling the truth when I said it's the story of every person who's ever lived. For the second week in a row, I shall reach for a quote from The Simpsons. Uh, Homer Simpson has bought a Bible, and he's annoyed about how expensive it was. Uh, He says this, This Bible cost me $15, and talk about a preachy book. Everyone's a sinner, except this guy. Shall we meet him? Because, yes, once again, the answer is Jesus. You knew it was going to be, didn't you? Let's think, as we reach the end of this series, about Jesus' story. Let's think about Jesus God. You see, Israel was meant to so align themselves with God's character that to look at them would be like meeting God himself. To peer over the borders of Israel was supposed to be looking at a nation that was both just and compassionate, wise and good, fair and kind. Because of their idolatry and sin and stubbornness, they could never get there. But when we look at Jesus, we see that exactly. He is God in human flesh. Hebrews calls him the exact imprint of God's nature. Colossians calls him the image of the invisible God. To look at Jesus is to see the God of all creation. He is the true Adam and the true Israel, the man who perfectly demonstrated to the world what God is like. 
And you can see it if you look at his life. Again, if you're new to Christian things, if you're a guest with us this morning, I warmly welcome you. It's so good to have you. Can I strongly recommend picking up a copy of one of the Gospels that are on the welcome desk in the hall, those eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, and just reading it for yourself, or ask someone to read it with you, and see Jesus with your own eyes, because it is like looking into the face of God's. Deuteronomy 11 has told us that God is the God of all creation, that everything on earth and heaven belongs to him, but he has set his electing love on his people. Well, Jesus demonstrates that exactly. He demonstrates that rule and control over creation. Everything obeys him. The wind and the waves obey him. Diseases, bacteria and viruses obey him. Demons obey him. Even death obeys him. But he wields all of that power for the good of his people to show love to a people who are harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. Deuteronomy 11 told us that God is a God of perfect justice who has compassion on those who've been mistreated. Well, we see that in Jesus too. We see his justice enacted on the people who turn the temple into a moneylender's pit, defrauding vulnerable people of their living. Jesus put a stop to that. We see him declaring judgment on the Pharisees who by their false teaching were leading people away from their gods. But we also see Jesus reach out with compassion and forgiveness and welcome to tax collectors and prostitutes and beggars and foreigners and widows and little children and sinners and idolaters. Deuteronomy 11 tells us that God is a God of mighty judgment who's giving his people what they don't deserve. And I wonder, as we were looking at this portrait of God in Deuteronomy, whether any of us thought, well, how is that possible, though? How can this be? How can God both bring perfect justice and mighty judgment, yet forgive people and welcome idolaters into his kingdom? How can God detest idolatry with a burning hatred, yet when an idolater repents, he says, oh yeah, great, come on in. How can he tell Israel that if they break the terms of the covenant, they will surely perish and yet bear with them for hundreds of years and for dozens of generations of covenant breakers? How can he be both of those things? How can he be both uh, wrathful and merciful? How can he be both just and forgiving? I hope you're asking that question because it's in many ways a central question of the whole Bible. Well, we'll see the answer again as we look at Jesus. Let's next consider Jesus' heart. Remember that we saw in Deuteronomy 10:16 that God wants a people who are circumcised in their hearts, a people who had cut off their stubbornness and idolatry and were totally devoted to him in their inward beings. Well, again, we don't see it in our world. We don't see it in our own hearts, but we do see it in Jesus. I wonder, what would you do if you had Jesus' power? That's something to talk about over, over lunch, perhaps, with, if you've got uh, people around your house for lunch or you're going to someone house, someone's house. What would you do if you had Jesus' power? If you could make the universe bend to your will, if you could change any circumstance, if you could tell the wind and the waves and the natural world to obey you, what would you do with that power? I'll tell you what I wouldn't do. I would not spend three years in poverty wandering the streets and fields of Israel, saying things that got me into massive trouble all the time, and submitting to an agonizing and torturous death at the hands of people who hated me for no reason at all. I would not be doing that if I had Jesus' power. The reason I would not do that is because my heart's desire is to look after myself and to, for comfort. My heart's desire is not wholly to love and serve God and his mission and his kingdom, but that is what Jesus did. 
when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and remained with him, signifying that Jesus' heart was animated and controlled by the Spirit of God and not by any sinful nature. When Jesus was baptized, God spoke from heaven about Jesus and he said this, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Israel, you see, were meant to be God's firstborn son. That's what they were called. They were God's son, the one that uh, imitated him and, uh, and obeyed him from the heart. The one made in the image of God who was supposed to reflect the character of God. That's what Israel was supposed to be. It was supposed to be God's son. Well, Jesus was that son perfectly. Everything he did and said and thought from the day he was born to the day he died revealed a heart that longed to obey his father. A heart under the control of God's Holy Spirit. A circumcised heart, utterly devoted to God. And that is what makes Jesus' decision all the more extraordinary. Remember in Deuteronomy 11, what did God say would come to those who had circumcised hearts? who obeyed him with everything they had, who followed all his commandments and kept all his decrees, the answer is blessing. Long life in a good land enjoying God's favor. Look down with me at Deuteronomy 11, verse 13 to 15. Here's what would come to a person with a circumcised heart. Verse 13, if you faithfully obey the commandments I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and oil. I'll provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and you will be satisfied. That is what Jesus deserves. A long life in a good land, the blessing and favor of God, the, the wine and the grain and the, and the oil, that is what Jesus deserves. And yet, what did he decide? Jesus decided to uh, choose an excruciating death to go to the cross. Why did he do that? Why did he choose curse when all he deserved was blessing? Well, Paul explains it in Galatians 3 on the screen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You see, it's in the cross of Christ that all the different threads of Deuteronomy come together. How can God be both perfectly just and abundantly gracious? The answer is the cross. He perfectly judges our sins in Christ so that he can be gracious to those who've rebelled against him. How could God bear with his people so long without giving them what their sins deserve? Answered the cross. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that he overlooked the sins of his people until he could lay them on Jesus and forgive them in him. How will God's promise of bringing blessing to the nations through Abraham's descendants possibly come about when pretty much all of Abraham's descendants are wicked idolaters? How's that going to work? Answer, the cross. Jesus, Abraham's descendant, takes the curse that God's covenant people deserve so that the blessing that he deserves can go out to all nations. Not just those who are physically circumcised, but as Paul says in Romans 2, to all who have circumcised hearts, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, 
who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit that remained on Jesus is now given to his people to regenerate them, to forgive them, to circumcise their hearts, to change them, to help them listen to his words, and to give them what Jesus himself deserves and Jesus himself received, resurrection, welcome into God's presence, the wine, the grain, the oil, the hope of eternal life. And that means that Israel's story does not have to be our story. Instead, Jesus' story can be our story. Let's go back to our party. must be winding down by now. It's getting late. People are getting their coats. Perhaps no one's spoken to me for a while because I keep banging on about God's curse. But now let's imagine somebody else comes to me and asks me to tell them about myself. And let's say I've been listening not only to Israel's story, but to Jesus's. What could I say? My name's Nathan. I've been given everything I could ever need by a gracious and compassionate God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, I've been forgiven. In Jesus, I'm declared righteous. In Jesus, I'm counted worthy of eternal life in God's presence. In Jesus, I have the gift of the Spirit who has circumcised my heart so I now delight in his law in my inmost being. In Jesus, I can look forward only to God's blessing. If you are trusting in Jesus today, that's your story. No matter what other stories you tell yourself in your head, they might sound very different to that, but from God's perspective, that is your story. That is who you are in Jesus. Forgiven, declared righteous, circumcised in your heart, looking forward to blessing. That is who you are in Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you today that this could be your story. If you come to Jesus today and repent of your sin and start following him as your Lord, you have thousands of years of history to see what he does with that kind of people. He welcomes them in. He welcomes them into his family and he makes his own son's story their story. That could be your story today. That could become your new identity. That is a thing that could give you hope and could change your life. So I'm going to say a prayer to thank God for Jesus and to ask that Jesus' story might become our story. And if you want to join in with that prayer, whether it's the first time you've prayed it or the thousandth, then do uh, say amen with me at the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so sorry that I have had a stubborn and rebellious heart. I'm sorry that I have chosen to follow idols and to rebel against you and to ignore you rather than to love you and fear you and walk in your ways as you so richly deserve. Father, thank you that Jesus always walked in your ways and that he loved you from the heart. Thank you that he always deserved blessing and yet that he took curse for me. Thank you that he has taken my curse and thank you that he now offers me forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit to circumcise my heart and to help me live for you. Thank you that he offers me the blessing that he deserves of resurrection and long life in a good land of the new creation. I want to accept that offer today. Please forgive me. Please circumcise my heart and please help me walk in your ways for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen.